Hey guys, thank you so much for checking out the newly named One Second in the Ball podcast, formerly known as the Bears Index podcast. As your host, Chris Doherty, I wanted to take a moment to personally thank you for coming to check us out here in season two. We have a lot of exciting things playing this year for the show, and we hope you stick around to see it all unfold. If you haven't yet, please subscribe on iTunes and follow us on Twitter. Without further ado, here's a brand new episode of the One Second in the Ball podcast. What's going on, guys, and welcome to the debut episode of the newly named One Second in the Ball podcast, episode one here in season two. Excited to be back with you guys for yet another Bears season. A little late in the year, uh, but we wanted to make sure that we upgraded all the equipment we're using, uh, made sure we were truly ready to dive into this season. A lot of things are happening. We're going to be showcasing the podcast on a couple new platforms this year, so excited to bring that news to you guys here later in the season. A lot of new guests lined up. Just really excited to get the ball rolling again, get back in the swing of things, be the voice of the Bears coverage that you guys are looking for, uh, and really just hit the ground running like we did last season. This episode is really special for me, okay? Uh, You'll hear shortly our interview with our first guest of the year, Jack Silverstein. Uh, You can find him on Twitter at Reed Jack. He is a sports historian of all things Chicago and more. Covers the Bears and their history on Windy City Gridiron. Probably one of the foremost authorities on Chicago Bears information online. Uh, Just It was so much fun being able to talk to Jack and just really get his opinion and his thoughts and how passionate he was about the story he wrote about the uniforms and the story behind them in terms of the ban on African-American players uh, during the time that the Bears wore those uniforms in 1936, a story that wasn't told uh, prior to Jack and his story released on Windy City Gridiron. So an extremely exciting topic that we're discussing here. If you're a historian of sports, if you're a Bears fan, if you're a Bears historian, uh, or, or you like to hear things like that, this is a great podcast for you tonight, a great episode for you to tune in for the first time. If you are listening for the first time and you weren't part of the fun last year, please subscribe on iTunes, set yourself up to get notifications, leave a review, let us know how we can improve the show, some guests you might want to hear. Without further ado, here was my conversation with Jack Silverstein on the Bears' controversial uniforms released and worn for the Week 4 game against the Minnesota Vikings. And everybody, join me in welcoming our very special guest on today's show, Jack Silverstein, author and sports historian whose work can be found at Windy City Gridiron in regards to tonight's topic, the throwback uniforms that the Bears wore Sunday against their Vikings in their week four, 16 to six win. Jack, if you haven't read it yet, wrote a piece called throwback, the truth about George Hallis and the NFL's ban on black players. We will get into that and much more tonight. Jack, how you doing? Hey, I'm, I'm doing well, Chris. How are you? I'm doing really well. I'm really happy you joined the show and, uh, I, I'm excited to get into all that is this extremely in-depth article that you wrote, uh, that, that caught a lot of waves on social media 
and uh, may have potentially played a role in, in some videos that were released by the team and, and some comments that were made uh, on the broadcast. So, you know, let's just get right into it. What about this piece kind of sparked your desire to cover it? Was it when you saw the uniforms, were you like, wow, that that kind of brings me back to a point where this was such a, a big topic that nobody's talking about? What was that moment that you said, this really needs to be discussed? Well, it was the moment where I realized what the story was. So uh, on June 7th, when the team announced the jerseys, and there had been there there had been there been rumors that these were going to be the jerseys. I don't know if you remember, but someone found at some suburban Dick's Sporting Goods that there was they were selling a Khalil Mack throwback, and someone took a picture of it and and tweeted it to UniWatch, and everyone was like, "Oh, is this going to be it?" So when uh, Tariq Cohen and Kyle Fuller came out and and uh, and debuted the jersey, and it was revealed that this was the one, I was like, "Oh, that looks dope!" And you know, I was just getting into the fashion. Um, but then George McCaskey, you know, was talking about how the team only wore these for one season. And so unlike other throwbacks that we've had that are tied to an era, this was tied to just one season. So I, I was like, that's cool. And so I started reading up on the 36 season. I, you know, I knew something about it. Um, obviously we had won the title in 32, 33. We went undefeated in 34 and then got blown out in the first sneakers game to the Giants. So I knew the era, um, but I, I didn't know the specifics of that year. So I'm looking it up. I'm like, all right, cool. A week later, uh, I saw a tweet that led to a Facebook post that was a little bit of a um, an ode to a guy named Joe Lillard. And Joe Lillard was a back for the Chicago Cardinals, 1932 and 1933. Um, fantastic player. He uh, scored half the Cardinals' points in 33, led them in total yardage. And she wrote about how he was one of the last two black players in the NFL before the 12-year ban. And that, like, stopped me in my tracks because I kind of knew about I wouldn't have called it a ban because it had never been termed that way, even though that's what it was. I kind of knew about this period of time in the NFLs, like murky um, from the 75 seasons video that talked about this period where there were no black players. I actually went back and, and rewatched that the other day. And, and, uh, and they do say that quote, the color line was drawn in 1934. And then they talk about 46, but they don't like really underline it. And, you know, I watched that movie. I loved it. It came out in 94, uh, but I was, like, you know, 12 and 13. Um, I don't even know if the words color line really, I don't know if I totally even got what he was saying. Because he didn't come out and say they banned black players in 1934. It was the color line was drawn. It was sort of a passive uh, recounting. So I knew about Kenny Washington and Woody Strode, and those are the two players who reintegrated the NFL in 46. I knew about Fritz Pollard, who'd been a superstar in the league's earliest days, starting in its first season. But I had never heard of Joe Lillard and Ray Kemp, who was the other black player in the NFL in 33. I had never really, no one had ever told me the story in that in that context where, 
you know, again, a lot of times when you talk about segregation, it's passive voice. You know, the color line existed or it, you know, there was segregation. And then, of course, then there are like heroes at the back end of the story, the black player who reintegrates and the the white owner typically you know branch ricky and jackie robinson perfect perfect example probably you know the iconic um template for all these stories so i knew washington strode but but no one had ever talked about lillard and kemp no one had ever talked about this idea of like there were black players in the nfl and then they were thrown out not just that they were there early in the 20s but like they were there 32 33 so reading um, reading this post uh, by this uh, by this writer at Chloe S it's C H L O E S Y L V E R S Chloe Silvers was my introduction to Joe Lillard. So then I said to myself, okay, wow, if the throwbacks that we're wearing are from 1936 and the band started in 1934. Then, in all likelihood, Kyle Fuller and Tariq Cohen were the first black players to ever wear the jerseys. So that was like lightning bolt number one. Now, lightning bolt number two was, as I was reading more about the band, it had always been attributed to George Preston Marshall, the owner of the Washington football team, who, as I write, he, he led it. I have no doubt that he was the person who was most enthusiastic about it, who's, you know, tried his hardest to keep it going. And obviously he was the last, Washington was the last team to integrate by over a decade. But George Preston Marshall didn't buy into the league as an owner until 1932. So then I started thinking, well, I don't know if he would have been able to strong arm all of these owners. I had identified an owners meeting in February of 33, where there were a number of rule changes. They were all designed to help the league um, have a better product on the field. The league was losing money. They were still using a bunch of college rules that no longer made sense for the professional game. And George Preston Marshall and George Hallis took the lead in creating all these new rules. So they added divisions, for example, um, for the first time. They had hash marks for the first time so that if you had a play that ran out of bounds, you weren't scrunched up um, on the sideline. They they moved the goalposts to increase um, scoring in the kicking game, so things like that. And and so I, I identified this meeting in February of 33, and I said, okay, this must have been where this ban on black players would have probably launched. And I just said, you know, Marshall was only in his, he had just completed his first year. I just didn't think that he had the power to do any of these things, frankly, if they if if the other owners said no, we don't want to be split into two divisions. I mean, what was George Preston Marshall going to say? Take you know, what was he going to do? So and I'll get to that in a second. But as I was thinking about this and kind of piecing together, like you know, like a detective or a you know, or an attorney or you know, someone on a crime scene or something, where you're like. You've got like the outline, but you're trying to say, okay, but how would it have actually happened literally step by step by step? And it just didn't make any sense to me that George Preston Marshall would have been able to strong arm all of these owners and the league president if they if they didn't want to go along with it already. And that's when I started thinking about, well, who was the most powerful voice at the time? And I said, it was George Hallis. 
anything that was going to happen at that point was going to, it had to pass through him. Um, George McCaskey gave an interview, I think it was in John Eisenberg's book, The League, which looks at the early years of the, of the NFL. And McCaskey said that Pete Rozelle, who was famous NFL commissioner who took over in 1960, so after 40 years of the league existing, George McCaskey said that Pete Rozelle was the first commissioner who my grandfather didn't, I don't remember what your word he used, if he said boss around or didn't order, instruct, or whatever it was. In other words, George House was the Jerry Jones of his day, combined with the Bob Kraft, because he was probably the most successful as well at that point. So it was those pieces, learning about the jerseys, just on their own terms, learning about Joe Lillard, and thinking about this ban in the context of Joe Lillard and Ray Kemp, and then thinking about, just thinking critically about how the story had been told to me and to us, you know, as NFL fans, and what I thought made sense. And then when I got to that point, then I started looking for any quotes from George Hallis or anything where he had addressed it. And I found two quotes from the 1970s where he explained, he was asked, why weren't there any black players for 12 years, considering that the league started from 1920 to 1933 and there were black players. And uh, one of those years, he said something like, well, maybe the college, there weren't great black players in college. And then another time he said, well, maybe the game didn't appeal to them. And those answers looked like nonsense. And then I researched to confirm my suspicions. And I decided that, yeah, those, those answers didn't make any sense for reasons that I explained in the story and I won't get into now. But I'll just say that they, they just didn't hold up. And so it was just like putting all this together piece by piece. And then I had to decide whether to write it because it's not like a, you know, it's not like a really fun story. It's like not necessary. You don't want, nobody wants to be the person, no one wants to be the Bears fan to write the George Hallis was a racist article, even though I wasn't, I was careful about how I described him. But I knew that that's how people would, some people would take it. And, you know, that's, you know, on the one hand, I could just say, all right, I'm just going to pretend I didn't find this and no one's going to know. Um, but on the other hand, I just felt like there was just going to be a piece of me that was always saying like, no, you found something and you should have said something. So, um, so I wrote it and I asked the Windy City Gridiron guys, um, because I was trying to pitch it around, it wasn't really happening, and so then I was like, all right, I'm going to run it on Windy City, but I asked those guys, I was like, you know, there might be questions that come to you. Some of you guys go into Hallis Hall. I don't, you know, but some of you do, and you guys have different followings than I do, and, you, you know, you're just, you just, you might have to hear about this. Is that going to be okay? Like, what do you think? And everybody on the staff, um, starting with Lester, our editor just said, we're like, we're behind you 100%. This is a great story. You're the person to write it. Um, they were like, we'll jump into the comment section if we have to. We'll jump onto Twitter if we have to. We'll respond to any negative tweets. And that just gave me like the final clearance um, to do it. And so I, you know, I went through several drafts, um, cut like 
I don't know, 1,500, 2,000 words maybe out of it and um, got it set for publication and uh, we were off and running. The response has been mostly mostly very, very positive, I'd say. Um, a few, you know, some people haven't been about it for different reasons, but mostly very positive. And then obviously it's, you know, then it's, it's taken on a life of its own. I mean, I think it's just been like a big enough change in the way that people think about the team's history through the context of these jerseys that it's very gripping. I think people are going through the same experience now that I went through um, over the summer when I was working on it. That, I mean, that's my feeling. What do you think? Does that sound, is that like what happened? Do you think? No, I mean, you know, it, it's, it's remarkable the way that you explain it, especially there at the end, you know, something like this, that's so passionate and, you know, because it, it did in a way for you as, as a, a historian and a writer and, and a creator come from a place of passion. Right. And so it's always a possibility that these things can take on a life of their own, as you say, and, you know, potentially get out of control. Right. To a point where it's just there's so many different opinions and. Um, you know, the platforms that these articles are able to reach, you, you know, can be volatile platforms, right? Especially a place like Twitter where everybody's an expert. And so, but when you read the article, it's very well thought out. It's, it's very well explained and it's very well organized, right? And, you know, the one thing that I went back and did, I, you know, I collect a lot of memorabilia um, for the Bears and, and I went out and bought their 100th year uh, like, you know, like a scrapbook uh, yeah, thing the, that they the, were selling. The centennial, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was just looking at it today, you know, to kind of double check, and, and I didn't see any mention of really anything that you just spent, you know, a few minutes talking about. And, you know, for the thing that I kind of go back to is for this being the 100th year and, and it being such a monumental um you know, push for the NFL and the Bears uh, in this this hundredth year campaign. While it can have some negative connotations to it, I, I think the right way to handle it would have been to get ahead of it, and especially in today's society, right? Because there's just so many different things going on with you know race and and concerns about you know racism, seeing a revival, and you know this could have been an opportunity, at least in my opinion, for the Bears to really just kind of run with this and, and take it by the horns and really own it. Well, uh, I want to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, definitely. So I hadn't seen the scrapbook, but when I reached out to George McCaskey through PR this summer for an interview, um, they wrote back, they said George McCaskey respectfully declines, but he wanted to send along these pages from the scrapbook. So he sent four um, PDF pages and it addressed the ban. It didn't go into the detail I went into, but it went into more detail than I would have expected from a product that is being sold in the team store on the team website. Um, I thought it was cool that he sent those along. Um, you know, I guess the big question here is, did the Bears think about what jerseys they wanted to promote? And when they were doing that, did they, that one of two things happened. So either 
they looked at the 36 jerseys and they were like, all right, these look cool. They're a neat historical anomaly since we only wore them one year. Uh, let's do it. That sounds great. And they never either like never looked into the history, never asked the question about, well, are there any, you know, is there any potential bad side to us doing this? Like they never looked at it. That's option number one. Option number two is that they did look at it. They did know about it. And they just said, eh, like, whatever, no one's going to figure this out. So it's like neither one of those is a great look. Um, obviously, something happened between when they announced the jersey and when they uh, put out the video last week when they acknowledged the history and the fact that no black players had worn it. Um, I have to assume that my article was part of that. It, I mean, I'm being humble, but like if I were an outsider on this, I'd be like, oh yeah, it was this. Like it, like it had to be. Um, having said that, you know, the Reverend Jesse Jackson found my piece, and I think anything like this, it's really, it's really the work of a lot of people. So I wrote what I wrote, but it wouldn't have gotten, if that's what happened, which I assume it is, it wouldn't have gotten into House Hall necessarily, or maybe it wouldn't have gotten their attention to that degree had Reverend Jesse Jackson not picked it up because then he wrote, he had me on a show and then he wrote a column for the Sun Times that was widely syndicated. On the show with uh, me was Chris Broussard from Fox Sports. He had me on his show, uh, but perhaps more significantly was Jim Rose here in Chicago from ABC. And Jim was saying, you know, I'm going to bring this into House Hall. I'm going to request an interview with George McCaskey. I'm going to find out if they ever had these considerations, they shouldn't be wearing these, you know, what's the deal? And, uh, and so I don't know, I'd be very interested to know, I haven't spoken with Jim, but um, let's see, today's Monday, they released the video a week ago tomorrow. So listeners, whenever you're listening to this, we're talking right now on Monday, September 30th, the team released the video uh, a week ago tomorrow. So Tuesday, uh, what is that? September 24th. And, but they recorded it the week prior. And that was when that was leading up to the game against Washington. And that's when George McCaskey, according to the Sun Times reporting, brought this into the locker room and said, you're going to be hearing questions about this. So I have to assume that there was some level of pressure that was put on I would imagine by Jim Rose, because I had reached back out to George McCaskey as a follow-up and hadn't heard anything. So I don't think it was me because they successfully, I mean, you know, I'm not going into House Hall. It's easy to ignore an email. But if Jim Rose is going in there with his audience, you know, his pedigree, his credentials, his, his, just everything that Jim Rose brings to the table, then that might've changed it. I don't know. I don't know what happened. Um, I would have liked to have seen them address this earlier. I'm glad that they addressed it now. They still kind of passive voiced it a little bit. But I think what's really critical is that George McCaskey, in sitting down in front of a camera and saying, you know, these jerseys were from a time when uh, African-Americans were not allowed on the Bears or in the NFL. I think that is a confirmation of history that in itself is very powerful because he has confirmed and co-signed 
a piece of history that otherwise wasn't being included in the common retelling of an era. And that in itself, to me, is a revolutionary act. I don't know if he viewed it that way or if he intended it that way. It might have just been PR spin, but you know, the way that he said it, I don't think was perfect. But I think just the fact that he did that, I applaud that effort um, because of what it means and because of what it does now. You have to respect that history now. Like it's, you can't, like people were getting on me at the beginning, like, who are you to talk about this? This is unwritten. So how do you know, you know, what proof do you have? Or how, how do you know what George House wanted, et cetera, et cetera. But they were like arguing with the fundamental premise that like, how do you know George House was involved? Or how do you, and it's like, well, a chairman of an NFL team who also happens to be the man in question's grandson sat on camera of his own volition and said, this is fact. And that's a pretty powerful moment, I think. No, absolutely. And you know, the one question I have for you, and you know, when you think about kind of everything that happened after the article released and picked up steam and, you know, the team getting involved in, in their own way with their, you know, with their social justice committee that included uh, Trevathan, Akeem Hicks, Trey Burton, Chase Daniel, um, and, and, and obviously George McCaskey. I, I have to imagine this wasn't your intention when researching and, and working and, and writing this article. What was your kind of ultimate motive? Was it just to bring something like this to light? Was it to kind of, I, I, I don't know, I probably doubt that it would be to, to kind of shame those who ignored it. I mean, what was your your overall kind of motivation for it? And then what do you feel this has accomplished, both now in the moment, because it is still relevant, and then moving forward, do you think that this is going to now live on a bigger platform moving forward? So my goal when writing it was just to write it. It was just to, I had found, I had found something that I didn't intend to find. I wasn't looking for it. I didn't know that this was what I was going to find, but I felt strongly and I feel strongly about this with all my stories that part of what I love is, um, accurately telling a story, something that happened and then recording it and presenting it as fact and and i feel strongly that when i find something um and maybe it's something that is uncomfortable for some people or inconvenient um maybe i have maybe forget about forget about something with the stakes this high maybe i have a some sort of thesis i can't think of an example but maybe i have some sort of thesis about um, some piece of history about the bulls, for example, and I'm humming along and then I find something that, that flips that thesis and it's like, okay, no one's going to know, but I'll know. And so I like include it. I always think that the truth is more interesting than anything that can be invented. Um, although I, I, I certainly love, I love, I, you know, I read some fiction, I read mostly nonfiction, but uh, but I read some fiction. I, you know, I love fiction. I love certainly movies. But I do think that when when 
when you learn the truth about a story, that to me is like more gripping and fascinating than, than anything else that can be invented. And to me, I feel a responsibility when I come upon those, those elements in history to share them accurately. Um, I, I mean, for a lot of reasons, but I just, that's just how I feel. So I wanted to write this because I felt like this was, this was like a test almost of myself. Like, like I knew that there were going to be concerns. Um, I knew that it was potentially going to give myself a bad relationship with the team, even though I don't, you know, I'm not like in-house hall or anything. I don't need them for anything particular. But, you know, when you're a sports writer, you kind of like, you never know. Like you want to, you know, you don't want to burn bridges, I guess, at any point. So that was in the back of my head. But I just felt like it was like a test of like, all right, are you about like, are you true to like what you say? Like that you just want to tell the real stories or, um, or is there a line? And I just decided I didn't want this to be the line. It just, it felt too important. It felt like something that, that people would want to know. So I didn't set out to burn anybody. I didn't set out to, and I purposefully avoided any level of advocacy in the piece. I just said, my responsibility is to, is to lay out the facts as I see them to also add some level of, um, uh, I don't know, analysis, comments, a little bit of commentary at the end. Uh, I did feel like I had to have a point that went beyond just the fact that like a reader would run through 5,000 words and they would want some sort of conclusion. Um, and I, and I felt that there was also a responsibility to read that, to, to read everything that was out there, the newspaper work, other people's books, all, all existing reporting that I could find and then draw some conclusions about it. So there are certain leaps that I've made, like, um, like, yeah, there's nothing written down that says that George House was involved in this, but it just felt like it was impossible that he wasn't. Um, and add to that, you know, the Mara family and Bert Bell and Joe Carr and Curly Lambeau and, and all the people who I mentioned. So I didn't set out to do anything other than to just tell the story. And I thought that that was at this particular point where my responsibility ended and that, that then I would see what other people thought about it. You know, I, I thought we'd get all sorts of responses if, if people were into it that, you know, some people would say, you know, cool, I didn't know this. Wow, cool, I'm, I'm happy I know it. And some people would say, we're, we got to boycott these jerseys. And some people would say, keep politics out of sports and some people would say who the hell are you to say this about papa bear and some people would say and then some people would say oh okay now the colin kaepernick thing makes sense or some people would say um you know i heard some people say like oh well now it makes sense why the bears drafted mitch trubisky um instead of pat mahomes or deshaun watson because they've never like spent a high draft pick on a black quarterback. And then I know some people are good. You know what I'm saying? Like people would just have whatever reactions they had. So I thought it was my responsibility to just get everybody on the same page. And then you can have whatever reaction you, you want and we can go from there and have whatever kind of conversation we want to have. Um, 
but that was that was first i just thought i should do it like i just thought it was the right thing to do um and it was certainly a fascinating story just like as a storyteller it was like like you feel like you know oh i got a live one here like i got like this is really something you know it was cool like i like telling cool stories and here's something people don't know um so that was certainly that was certainly part of it where do i think it's going now is that i'm sorry i got lost is that what you, that was your second question yeah i mean what, you know what, what kind of life do you think that you know this is going to take on moving forward okay well i have no idea um and i say that because when i wrote the piece and i published it at the end of august you know it got some nice responses um at the outset and you know people people were excited about it but then to get a to get a direct message um on friday night so i published it august 28th i'm just looking at this in twitter on september 6th santita jackson reached out to me and santita jackson is a radio host um on wcpt she is also the co-host uh and producer of the Keep Hope Alive show with Reverend Jesse Jackson. She's Reverend Jesse Jackson's daughter. And she wrote to me um, saying that she loved the piece and that her father loved the piece um, and then that she wanted to know if I wanted to come uh, in. She wrote, Reverend Jackson was compelled by your story and research. I was like, oh my God. So, um, so that was like a huge bump. Then I did his show, and then the fact that he wrote a piece on it uh, in the Sun Times—that was a huge bump. I didn't know about that. The, he didn't tell me. My the the WCG guys emailed me, or like we have a, like a group email, and they like emailed the group, and they were like, "Look at this." And I was like, "Whoa!" So that was a huge bump up. And then, and then you know, I did Broussard's show. I knew Jim wrote. Uh, Jim Rose was going to do something, but then it was kind of dying down a little bit. Although I, I was like, all right, we're coming into the game. I'll tweet something, and you know, we'll just keep it rolling. But like, then, then, then the, then the video comes out, and then it was like, oh, okay, this is this is now this is now another level. And then I'm getting calls. You know, I did interviews with Sports Illustrated and with ESPN, and this was with BBC, which was like wild. And I've been in touch with people from Brazil, from the UK, from Germany. Um, I mean, the genie's out of the bottle on this one. And so I frankly don't know what's next. Uh, you know, the Bears will wear the jerseys again. I thought that CBS did a pretty terrifically bad job of relaying the story to their audience. They pretty much flubbed every fact <laughs> it was cool that they mentioned it but they pretty much flubbed the whole story yeah so, so that was you know that was kind of my next question like what are your thoughts on on how cbs handled it i mean did obviously you put so much effort and so much energy and so much work into this piece i mean how did that make you feel well i had a sense that they were gonna do something on it um and i just hoped that they would get it right um that was what was most important to me um you know there's obviously there's like a level of 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 personal pride and satisfaction like of course i was like i was hoping they'd be like 
and then there's a writer, Jack Silverstein. But you know, I, I wasn't I wasn't fooling myself. But I didn't really care about that. I just wanted if they were going to tell this story to a national audience, that they tell it correctly, and they really butchered it. And if you didn't know anything about the story and you just were watching the game and heard them tell the story, you might have come away with the idea that at some point over the summer, like the Bears players somehow learned the history on their own and then went into George McCaskey's office and were like, we should wear these jerseys. Like the way that they described it was very slippery. And, and, um, I, and it was, that was a little unsettling because, you know, Tracy Wolfson did her report and her, she like didn't say anything almost nothing she said was right. My friend Xavier Pope pointed out that she even said that they were raising money for social injustice organizations. And, uh, but then they kicked it back to Jim Nance and Tony Romo and Jim Nance was like, and I just want to reiterate the players came up with this. And then I was like, all right, what are they doing? Like, are they like, why are they saying it that way? So that was on, that was upsetting because they just were telling it wrong. Um, however, however, the the fact is is that George McCaskey sat down in front of a camera and confirmed the basic facts that there was a ban that the Bears were involved uh, and that it was a shameful period. And that alone is more powerful to me. And I think just objectively speaking, I think that the impact of that is stronger than the impact of a rather rushed, you know, 80 to 90 second sideline report and then booth follow up. You know, everything that the three, I guess Romo didn't speak. I think it was just Wolfson and uh, Nance. But everything that they said, you know, was sort of goofy. But I don't think that that has the power um, of what George McCaskey and the five players said. In fact, I haven't even seen anyone other than myself tweet the footage of um, of the piece in the broadcast. Whereas, gosh, think about how many people shared the Bears video. I mean, it was their pinned tweet for like five days. Um, all sorts of reporters, uh, former Bears, you know, different people in different countries. I just think like the power of that is like so much greater. And and then we've got, you know, December 5th, they'll wear the jerseys again. And um, and at the very least, even if uh, even if NFL Network slash Fox, even if they either don't talk about it or talk about it wrong, you're going to have another week where people are going to be sharing the story again. Um some people will share it because they loved learning about it. And some people will share it because they're so my friends or my family or my supporters. And they're excited just as like when one of my friends does something and I'm like, I know this guy, you know, like, like when your friend, if your friend does something great and people are talking about him, you want to be like, he's, I've known him for this long. People are going to share the story because of that, because of their connection to me and a sense of pride that they have, that they, you know, that they know me and that I did this. Um, but then other people are going to share it because they're going to be Googling and they're going to come upon one of these many stories 
that either that either my story or a story that somebody else wrote, like Paul Lucas at UniWatch, or he is UniWatch at Sports Illustrated, his story is phenomenal, phenomenal because it looks at the it looks at the throwback concept in the broader context of throwbacks and how this is actually kind of always at play. This idea of like what do these these jerseys really mean? Um, people are going to find that. And then it, that links back to my story. So I think this is going to have a lot of legs. I'm very interested to, to see what happens. And, um, you know, regardless of how people feel about it, it's just like the fact that it's been confirmed. It's just, it's life changing. I mean, it's, I don't want to say it's life changing. I don't mean for me. I mean, like all of us, like it's confirmation of, of history. And history is only as good as the people who tell it. So the fact that the grandson of the person and the, the person who runs the team sat down and said that, whatever his intentions may have been, it kind of doesn't matter. Like, he did it, and, and it's law now, and it's fact. So, you know, shoot. I mean, it's – who knows? I wasn't expecting Jesse Jackson to call. I wasn't expecting him to write about this. I wasn't expecting the Bears to do what they did. So who knows where we'll be in a week? I, I have no idea. No, I mean, you know, I, I don't think it can go unspoken just how important it is that someone like yourself did step up and, and did tell a story because it can be very difficult to go after someone's hero, right? And and a lot of people equate the history of the Bears to George Hallis and, like you said, Papa Bear and you know, what he means to, to the team and the city and, and right. the NFL. And so to not really, not purposely go after him, but to put him in a light that he's really never publicly been in before, that can be dangerous as a writer. As you said, it, it could put you at risk for relationships and opportunities because people hold, you know, the, the aura of, of George House very near and dear to their heart, right? And so... You know, I think the the important thing is being able to tell your story without saying, hey, listen, I'm not trying to offend anybody, but I think this is something that needs to be discussed and explained and talked about. It's something that I I commend you a lot for and, and I'm very grateful that you were able to share it because there is so much to be told within a uniform right and and that's yeah. why a guy like paul lucas is so phenomenal at what he does and his, he's he's just there's no one like him right and no i mean his like his story like the fact that he was able to quote tweet the bears you know people were quote tweeting the bears tweet and being like oh this is cool or this is my team and some people were like this wouldn't have happened without reject and some people were like this is bs why are we talking about this whatever you know people had their reaction but like the fact that paul could do it and say i have never seen any team do this like that is really powerful and no one else was in a position to do that and i think that's part of history and that's something that uh when i was on reverend jackson's show he and i and santita i don't remember who else at that point was on but we were talking about how you know Reverend Jackson was filling me in on pieces of history that I didn't know about, but the only reason he was talking about them was because I'd filled him in on something he didn't know about. Like, like 
Paul Lucas filled me in on something that I didn't know, but the only reason he did that was because I wrote something he didn't know. And that's like how history is supposed to work and how storytelling is supposed to work. By the way, as literally as we're talking, I just found that the Young Turks did a piece on um, on the Bears and on this, and they quoted my story heavily. I mean, with like screen caps and stuff. Um, and you know, the Young Turks, uh, they've they've got a very strong following, and and they've got their their approach to how they tell stories. Um, and and so now there's here's this big group of people. Here's their audience, uh, and I'm just looking at this on Facebook. Let's see what their their following is. I mean, it's it's pretty big, 245,000 people. So like, here's here's their big crew, and uh, and now all these people know know about this. So um, so whether you get it within the context of the Young Turks or of UniWatch or of Hogan Johns or Lawrence Holmes or Sarah Spain or uh, you know, or, or yourself, um, or directly from me, or from the Trib or the Sun Times. Like the fact that all these different groups and and people and people with different audiences and different angles, and that everybody's finding something within this story that resonates. Um, you know, I, I think to that that speaks to the power of the of the information, not the story that I told necessarily, even though that played a role, but the information. I think people just like to have this information. And like you said, uniforms tell stories and what stories are they telling? And that's what we're talking about here. So it's, uh, it's pretty cool. No, it is. And, and again, you know, kudos to you for, for just the incredible work and the incredible reach that you were able to, to have with this story. And, you know, a lot of people, have obviously taken it to heart in, in a way that is fantastic, right? You know, it was a tough time back then, you know, in the 30s, and a lot was going on, and, um, you know, equality was, you know, somewhat of a, just a, a futuristic thought, or, or not even a, a thought at that time, and, you know, you were able to, for a team that has so much history, and a team that is celebrating so much history this year, um, obviously a somewhat of a controversial piece right but i think in in my opinion it was it was necessary it was you know purposeful and and it made a lot of sense right because you can't just tell all of the good history and leave the bad history out because it's because it's bad right right you know it's even even though it may be negative it's still very important and, and you weren't afraid to go there. And, and I think that that's something that, especially young writers and, and young podcasters and just people that want to create content need to not be afraid of, yep. right, is, is to take that extra step. And you know what? It, it may blow up in your face, but it may also give you opportunities like you've you, you've seen and, and you know, reaching a, a global reach to all these different countries. And it's um, it, it was, uh, you know, just a, a really awesome piece by you and it's been an honor to talk to you and uh, i really appreciate the time that you've taken um so before we let you go you know obviously outside of this article this isn't just the the first and only article you've written i actually found you because of your massively long chicago bulls thread and uh you know one of my best friends is a diehard bulls fan 
and I was like, hey, I need you to read this this thread. And he had my phone for like almost an hour, just going <laughs> over and over and over the tweets. And he's like, I can't believe that. And I never knew that. And Which one I was, was like, it? Do you remember? Um, it was about like when when Jordan uh, when they like when they conspired to hire Tim Floyd. Okay, um, yeah, it was the, it was the it was the break it was the breakup thread. Yeah, the breakup thread. Yep. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And he was just he was just like reliving memories through it, and it was really really cool to see. And uh, you know, ever since then, I've just I've been a massive fan of your work, and um. You know, obviously, was extremely happy to see this this story do well. So, you know, what other you know what other pieces you know the breakup piece do you think people should know about uh, with the work that you've done? Uh, yeah, well, three years ago, I published a book called "How the Goat Was Built: Six Life Lessons of the 1996 Chicago Bulls," and that looked at the '96 Bulls and just. Um, like I said, how they were built. <laughs> like it looked at uh, the impact that Michael had, the impact that Scotty had, uh, the impact that Phil had, the impact that Krauss had, and a couple other things. Um, so that's certainly a big one. Uh, I would say that if you're a fan, if you liked the uh, throwback story that I did on on George Hallis, there's been some other pretty big Bears pieces. I did one called the 50-year plan and. It's about, it was a plan I laid out that the Bears, after 50 years, should unretire a person's number. They should put the person's initials forever on the sleeves of that jersey. And then they should use the slot to retire someone else's number. And then have a, and then have a, a ring, you know, an honor ring, a ring of, what are they called? I'm, it's late, I'm sorry. Ring, uh, of, ring of honor. Ring of honor. Yeah. An honor ring. They should have a ring of honor at Soldier Field and and put these names up because, number one, you know, when they said in 2013 that Dick uh, that Mike Dicka was going to be the last number retired, that means that obviously 54 is not going to be retired, 23. But there's still guys, you know, look at Mike Singletary never had his number retired. It's crazy. Like, you know, Richard Dent and. Hamp and there we've had think about the 55s um, that we've had Buffon, Otis and uh, and Lance. So I just I, I wrote about how we should retire um, unretire numbers. But in doing this, I needed to get the exact like dates of all of the retired numbers and and um and it wasn't so easy as just like when they retired because the bears didn't retire any jerseys until 1949 they retired uh red grange 77 bronco nagurski 3 and bill hewitt 56 and those guys had all been retired bill hewitt was dead at that point he'd been killed in a car accident so i wanted to reconstruct the actual list of retired numbers so I reached out to Bears PR. They gave me a list, but then I cross-checked it against uh, newspapers.com and looked for, you know, articles actual, actually from the time to, to, to check their years. And so I was able to compile what I think, as far as I can tell, is the most accurate list anywhere that you can find of exactly when Bears numbers were retired. So I thought that was a cool one. Um I did a number. I did another one that was called 
the complete history of the future. And it was after we drafted Mitch and it was, it was looking at, I identified 13 quarterbacks who had been presented to bears fans as quote, the future. And then looked at whether or not they were the future and how, how did that all play out? And it's some people that you'd be like, Oh, of course he's on that list. Sid Luckman, McMahon, Rex Grossman. But there are other people who you, you might be like, who, who's, who's Bob Williams or like, why is Gary Huff on this list? Or, you know, you might not be totally familiar with, uh, you know, with Bobby Lane and Johnny Lujak. So that's a cool piece. I like that. And, um, I don't know, just, uh, the threads, like you said, um, the threads are, are a lot of fun. And uh, you check out on Instagram, a shot on ELO. And that's my Chicago sports history Instagram account. So I don't know. I do uh, I do a lot. I write a lot. I talk a lot. Um, so And I like to talk to people online and, and uh, chop it up and have debates and really have memories and all that good stuff. So that's what I do. Yeah, absolutely. And, and anybody that is listening, you can find Jack on Twitter at at Reed Jack. And again, uh, a shot on Elo. Uh, I'm actually looking at the Instagram feed right now. A ton of great pictures, a lot of great stories to go with them. The one thing I, I, I will not let you leave without asking, uh, because I need to validate my own thoughts. Yeah, is I've, I've always I, I've always been of the mindset that Devin Hester is a first ballot, no question Hall of Famer, and I get a ton of pushback about it. I wanted to get your thoughts on whether I'm crazy or whether I'm pretty dead on. Well, I've written pretty extensively about why Devin belongs in the Hall of Fame. Um, The more that I've learned about the Hall of Fame, the more I can accept uh, if someone doesn't go in on the first ballot because you only can put in at most, you know, from the modern era category, five people. And I do think that there should be a, a better spread um, among positions and also to, you know, reevaluate certain people who maybe are at the end of their 25 years of eligibility in the modern era category before you get kicked up to the seniors where it's like total crapshoot at that point. So whether he's a first ballot, but like in like in like the uh, colloquial way that we use the term first ballot to, to in other words, to say this person, there should be no debate. Yes, Devin Hester is a Hall of Famer. It's not just about the touchdowns. The touchdowns are a result of all of the returns. And I would love it if someone made a Devin Hester return highlight reel of all of his best returns where he didn't score. Because if you watched the Bears and you watched Devin's career, there were so many returns, 30, 40, 50, 60 yards, 70 yards, down to the 12, you know? like, like and And it's those returns that then shake up a coverage team to maybe change what they do the next time and maybe the next time they're kicking out of bounds and then short field field goal touchdown whatever so um but i also think that devin shouldn't be the only returner in the hall that like he shouldn't have to be the best to be in the hall he should just have to be among the best i i happen to think he is the best but uh, I wrote a piece about why Devin should go in the Hall of Fame. But I argued that the, the Hall of Fame should do like an inaugural returners class. Because like Dion's in, but he 
is also in as a corner. Um, Rod Woodson is in also in as a corner and a safety, but I would love to see, you know, someone like the, like the older, like the pioneers, Abe Woodson, uh, for example, somebody I mentioned, I think Brian Mitchell needs to go in. He's second all time to Jerry Rice Great in all, name, Brian in, Mitchell, in, in all purpose yards, second all time, Jerry Rice in all purpose yards, man. That's, that's nuts. Uh, you know, Mel Gray, um, I think we should give Dante Hall a look. You know, Josh Cribbs is up this year. I, I think that's I think that's somebody who it's worth looking at. So to answer your question, yes, absolutely. I think Hester needs to go in. I'm trying to remember the, the who who else I put on my list. Oh yeah, Rick Upchurch from the Broncos. But I'll just say, uh, and this is the last thing that the following people said that Devin Hester should be in the Hall of Fame. Brian Mitchell, Gal Sayers, Deion Sanders, Desmond Howard, Billy White Shoes Johnson, Mel Gray. That's pretty fantastic company. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, you should tell your friends you're right. <laughs> and, so, uh, the, the really quick, so the, the kind of the thing that sparked it is we were doing, as a historian, this is probably right down your alley, we had a, a conversation, you know, kind of like water cooler conversation. And I said, for me personally, Devin Hester is on my Bears Mount Rushmore. Mm, and I, I wouldn't go quite that far, but um, I mean, you know, personally for me, um, yeah, no, I get that. But, you know, a lot of people, you, you know, some agreed and some said there's just way too many great players in Bears history. But then I, I took it a little bit further and I said, all right, well, if he's not on the on the uh you know the mount rushmore he's without a doubt for me a first bout hall of famer so you know i'm obviously very glad that you were able to confirm that for me so uh jack thank you so much for your time uh you know just under an hour here so i appreciate it Uh, i know you're very busy uh again for those that are looking to find more of jack's work you can find it at read jack on twitter and a shot on elo on instagram jack i want to thank you so much for your time i appreciate it Hey, now, Chris, thank you. Uh, thank you for thinking of me and um, for inviting me onto your show and and for the great conversation and kind words. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Absolutely. And everybody, that is Jack Silverstein. We will talk to you later. Hey, guys, thank you so much for checking out the newly named One Second in the Ball podcast, formerly known as the Bears Index podcast. As your host, Chris Doherty, I wanted to take a moment to personally thank you for coming to check us out here in season two. We have a lot of exciting things playing this year for the show, and we hope you stick around to see it all unfold. If you haven't yet, please subscribe on iTunes and follow us on Twitter. Without further ado, here's a brand new episode of the One Second in the Ball podcast. What's going on, guys, and welcome to the debut episode of the newly named One Second in the Ball podcast, episode one here in season two. Excited to be back with you guys for yet another Bears season. A little late in the year, uh, but we wanted to make sure that we upgraded all the equipment we're using. Uh, made sure we were truly ready to dive into this season. A lot of things are happening. We're going to be sh- showcasing the podcast on a couple new platforms this year. So excited to bring that news to you guys here later in the season. A lot of new guests lined up. Just really excited to get the ball rolling again. 
get back in the swing of things, be the voice of the Bears coverage that you guys are looking for, uh, and really just hit the ground running like we did last season. This episode is really special for me, okay? Uh, you'll hear shortly our interview with our first guest of the year, Jack Silverstein. Uh, you can find him on Twitter at Reed Jack. He is a sports historian of all things Chicago and more. Covers the Bears and their history on Windy City Gridiron. Probably one of the foremost authorities on Chicago Bears information online. Uh, just It was so much fun being able to talk to Jack and just really get his opinion and his thoughts and how passionate he was about the story he wrote about the uniforms and the story behind them in terms of the ban on African-American players uh, during the time that the Bears wore those uniforms in 1936, a story that wasn't told uh, prior to Jack and his story released on Windy City Gridiron. So an extremely exciting topic that we're discussing here. If you're a historian of sports, if you're a Bears fan, if you're a Bears historian, uh, or, or you like to hear things like that, this is a great podcast for you tonight, a great episode for you to tune in for the first time. If you are listening for the first time and you weren't part of the fun last year, please subscribe on iTunes, set yourself up to get notifications, leave a review, let us know how we can improve the show, some guests you might want to hear. Without further ado, here was my conversation with Jack Silverstein on the Bears' controversial uniforms released and worn for the Week 4 game against the Minnesota Vikings. <laughs> 